Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. I'm Lizzie Rieger. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Emory, and I'm also one of the presidents of Wiser. And I'm Helen O'Leary. Um, I'm a third-year medical student at Emory, and I am one of the Wiser podcast hosts. We are so excited to have Dr. Megan Tracy here with us today. Dr. Tracy graduated from the Medical Scholars Program at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign with both a JD and MD, with an emphasis on health policy and patient safety. She went on to complete a residency in general surgery, followed by a fellowship in vascular surgery at the University of Virginia. During her research years as a resident, she worked as a legislative fellow for the U.S. Senate. Dr. Tracy is currently a practicing vascular and endovascular surgeon at UVA, as well as the founder and co-medical director of the UVA Northridge Vein Clinic. We are excited to say that Dr. Tracy is our first surgeon with a JD to be featured on the podcast. It's wonderful to be with you guys today. I appreciate the invitation, and it's wonderful to see what you're doing in Emory and what a talented team you've got here from the trainees on up. Thank you so much. So... When did you realize you wanted to be a doctor and how did you decide to pursue both an MD and a JD? I think I became interested in being a physician in college. I had actually originally wanted to be a large animal veterinarian, but I do talk about the strange places that life leads you. I think at some point I thought about the idea of getting that training and doing surgery on horses or cows. And it seemed to me that in the global sense, if you had that knowledge, those skills, that training, I liked the idea of using it to help people. It dates me a little bit, but I became interested in health policy while I was in college. I was at Stanford University in the 90s. And for those folks who were around in health policy, there was a lot of conversation around the Clinton Health Plan, all of the same pressures we see in the healthcare system today around cost and quality and funding. And there was this sense there were going to be major changes. And for somebody looking at going into medicine, that the things that happened in Congress, things that happened on the regulatory front with Health and Human Services, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, were really going to impact um, how we practice medicine and what the experience was for patients. So I really came to an interest in medicine and health policy before I learned that I loved surgery. I had no exposure to surgery at all. In terms of pursuing the law degree, I was specifically interested in federal legislative and regulatory policy, and that really seemed like the focused skill set and experience for that. There are a ton of ways to learn to build your skill set for health policy. It doesn't always take additional credentials. There are people who get their MBAs and MPH, you know, Masters in Clinical Research, some of these other avenues, but the JD seemed like a good fit for me. In terms of surgery, I came through, like everybody, kind of wide-eyed, wanting to do well on my rotations. My second rotation was surgery, and I had thought, maybe OBGYN, maybe PEDS, but it'll be good to have the surgery rotation, so I'll be prepared for OB. Well, I loved surgery, and I went all the way through and never found anything in medical school that was as gratifying as that surgery rotation had been. And I'd say the same thing for vascular surgery. I talk a lot about the fact that surgeons and the surgical viewpoint are often underrepresented in health policy. So we find that the solutions to healthcare problems often don't meet our needs and the needs of our patients. Part of that, I think, is a practical matter. It has to do with the fact that the surgical career and surgical life have been fairly demanding of time and, and attention and haven't historically fit super well with a policy career. 
uh, but more is the reason to do it because I think that there's uh, a real need for that. While I was in medical school, it became evident that I was going to do surgery and that I was going to do vascular surgery. So that's how I came to that path. But it really was medicine and policy first. And then I discovered that surgery was really my love with the medicine. Well, we were definitely very impressed by your CV as both a surgeon and with all of your health policy work. I think that definitely segues into some of the questions we had about health policy. You know, you've done a lot of work in the space of value-based payment programs. And we were wondering what, if you could tell us a little bit more about your thoughts of implementing the consideration of social determinants of health in Medicare payment programs specifically, and any other thoughts you have that you'd like to share with our audience? Absolutely. About. Well, I think I, I tried to start and finish with the idea that we need to come back to the touchstone of our mission, which is providing high quality care for patients. And that includes access in the modern era and in vascular surgery, sometimes that's technology, but ultimately it's providing care. I, I think that one of the problems with healthcare policy solutions that are driven by process is that you focus on cost and you're trying to save in order to save. And really within that, we should be saving in order to deploy our resources as best we can to provide access and care to people. And we don't always do that. If you really try to focus uh, exclusively on cutting costs and hitting some of the quality metrics, what you end up doing is that finding certain patients are not attractive patients. And those are often patients who's, who absolutely need access to care and probably you know, are even more in need of care and high quality care and care that wraps around their needs than most folks. Um, but they're not going to make you look good in a quality program because there are people who come to it uh, with comorbid conditions, with a burden of disease like diabetes, hypertension, people who smoke, people who are lower socioeconomic status, have fewer resources at home. So I think walking back to my academic career, some of the important work that we've done has been looking at social determinants of health, not just on the individual level, but like the community level. If you come from a challenged community, a lot of unemployment, low education rates, fewer resources in the community impacts your outcomes in ways that are not captured by our classical risk adjustment. I think that you run the risk of economically redlining those patients. You make them undesirable patients for people who are watching the bottom line a lot. They're difficult patients to take on, you are, and you're not fully understanding what's driving their outcomes if you don't broaden your focus and look at things like social determinants of health. Then you get to bigger questions in the healthcare system. We're very siloed. We look at food resources, transportation resources, housing resources, and healthcare resources very separately. And sometimes we ask mm -hmm. our host, hospital social worker or case manager to solve all those problems in 18 hours so that we can free up a hospital bed and get somebody moved on. It's not the way to do that. So ultimately, when we look at healthcare spending, we spend more per capita than other countries. But probably when you take a step back and look at the broader spending on social care and the resources with regard to social care, that's not necessarily the case in the states relative to other comparable nations. And we're just asking our healthcare system to fix a lot of problems that are both beyond its control in the traditional sense and um, beyond our comprehension in that that's not really what we've focused on or looked at. So I do think that we need to be very sensitive 
to incorporating that into our solutions, but we also need to be very sensitive about not implementing solutions, whether it's value-based payment programs or other models that end up hurting the people who need our help the most. I think in vascular surgery, we're very cognizant of that because we disproportionately treat people who are from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, a lot of people in minority groups, people who have both geographic and other social challenges in terms of access, whether they're urban or rural. And unlike a lot of surgeons, we see people longitudinally over the course of their entire lives. And we're not necessarily curing disease, we're managing really challenging chronic disease we say peripheral arterial disease, but we really mean tobacco use, diabetes, atherosclerosis, hypertension, and chronic peripheral arterial disease. And I think that it gives us a level of insight that, that really brings all these things home to us. These are all things that we know. And I think it also makes us important people to feed that understanding and investment back into the shaping our system. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense how you just laid that out. And part of me is wondering, do you feel that your lifelong interest in taking care of people holistically and and health policy work, do you feel like that kind of marries specifically well with vascular? I absolutely do. do. Like all vascular surgeons, I love operating and there is sort Mm -hmm. of a magic to the technical element of things, you know, whether it's advanced endovascular techniques that let you send people home the next day for what used to be a big operation, solve problems that used to be unsolvable for folks who are sick. But I also like the longitudinal aspect of things. Uh, As somebody who spent my entire career at the University of Virginia, where I trained, I know patients, I still see patients in the clinic who I met as a resident joke with me about, you know, how they're going to outlast me coming to the clinic, and I try to help them do that. But I think part of the reason that it's complimentary is as much as I love seeing these folks, it really comes home to you that we're often not curing disease and that so many of the impediments to people having good outcomes and so many things that that really lead you down this heartbreaking path where ultimately people get sick, bad things happen, they have bad healthcare outcomes, they have catastrophic events, and they pass away. It's That's hard. So I like both the instant gratification of surgery. You go to battle on any day and you win or lose some battles and you know we feel we're pretty good at it and we're proud of that. I like that sustaining thing. But I also do think that one of the things that causes exhaustion, burnout, frustration, in vascular surgeons in particular, it's not necessarily the long hours or the unpredictable hours, although those things are true, or the high-risk situations. It's the sense that the system's working against you, the system's working against your patients. And the opportunity through health policy to think that although health policy is incredibly frustrating and that usually it doesn't move fast, things are 5, 10, 15 years in the building, that maybe you can move the needle a little bit in a way that means that we'll be doing things better in 10 years, that things will be better for our patients, they'll have better there will be a little bit of bright light at the end of the tunnel for them, but also that it'll be um, an easier place to practice and a more gratifying place to practice for the next generation of vascular surgeons. So I think that those things are very complementary in that way, balancing those both as parts of the career. So I think I've been really blessed to to have that opportunity. And that's not something that I planned because I had particular insight, but I appreciate that those avenues have been open to me. Wow, definitely. As people that are kind of going into this field, what would your advice be for medical students or trainees who want to become involved in the intersection of medicine or surgery and health policy? I'd say do it. 
by all means. And, and honestly, even if people don't think that that's a particular motivation, if you're investing a decade or more of your life in developing a knowledge and skill set and expertise to deliver medical care to people, whether you're a surgeon or you know, in, in the primary care clinic. I think that to the extent that health policy in this country impacts how that care is delivered, how effective your care is, how your patients do, it's worth investing in a decade of education to understand how that system works and how it's impacting your patients. So backing up, there's a ton of opportunity for medical students and residents who are interested to learn more about this. Uh, there are resources through our societies. Um, the AMA has opportunities for medical students to get involved at the state level, through the state medical societies, at the institutional level, at the national level. All of our professional societies have similar opportunities. There are learning materials around health policy. Most of our medical schools now have at least some opportunity to pursue additional education on that front. But there are also, if you want to take that next step, opportunities both to learn more uh, the American College of Surgeons has a wonderful um, policy and advocacy. It's actually a leadership and advocacy summit every spring in Washington, D.C., where the first day is spectacular leadership programming. And you really look at leaders in surgery. Uh, you not only get to meet them face-to-face -face and, and, and interact with them, but it's really good content in terms of how to be an effective leader and how to get involved in leadership in every aspect of medicine, whether you're interested in quality-related research, whether you're interested in the implementation of quality programs within a health system, whether you're interested in doing patient advocacy. And then there's a day of policy and advocacy training where it is policy boot camp. You learn about the really front and center prime issues that are impacting our patients and our surgeons, and then you go to the Hill for a day, and you learn how to take your knowledge and, and all of the things that you'd like to impart to our policymakers to help support them in doing what we need to do to do our jobs well. And you go up to the Hill and you do it. And you sit down with congressional staff and get to see how that works and members of Congress and see how that works and meet other people who are like-minded and engaged, which is also wonderful. You learn there's a traveling, a traveling band of people nationally who are really invested in this. And you learn a lot from each other. And then for people who want to take that a step beyond, there are opportunities during research time, during other portions of the career to pursue research time fellowships in health policy and advocacy, pursuing additional formal training, whether that's through a degree program or whatnot. There are Robert Wood Johnson and White House fellowships that support people working in health policy in DC, and they're absolutely fantastic. Those are very good opportunities. You have Dr. Dwyer, who's been a wonderful partner working through the Society for Vascular Surgery, looking at alternative payment models and, and value in healthcare within health systems, who's very aware of those and would be a great resource. But reach out to any of us, and, and we'd be happy to connect you with opportunities. And, and I think even if you're not sure that this is your avenue, it's absolutely worth understanding health policy and the process of advocacy just to prepare you for this career. Sharing all those resources, I honestly had no idea so many great opportunities like that existed. Yeah. And then on the note, you brought up the Society of Vascular Surgeons. You recently stepped into the role of chair of the Society's Advocacy Council this past June. We were just sort of 
wondering what's your experience been um, in that new role and kind of what are the things that you're looking forward to in the future? It's incredibly exciting. I mean, the Society for Vascular Surgery for a small group of people representing a huge group of patients has been incredibly effective over the years in looking at the valuation of surgeon services, has built a lot of credibility through the relative value process, which goes through this process of assigning values to CPT codes through the ROC, which is a a volunteer AMA-based committee that helps do that. It's done a wonderful job of advocating on specific issues, whether it's screening for abdominal aortic aneurysms or making sure that we keep access to to patients in the outpatient setting available in in difficult economic times for people trying to run practices. I think there are a ton of opportunities going forward. So on the one hand, you get to be proactive and say, we're going to utilize the expertise and energy of people like Dr. Alibi, who is working at Emory and is an absolute expert in peripheral arterial disease, risk factors for bad outcomes, including amputation, looking at similar things in the dialysis population, and linking those to social determinants of health, to geography, and identifying those gaps and risk factors that aren't being addressed in policy. So I said, our policy has to be undergirded by data. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity, and I've already reached out to her, to be one of the real anchors for the Society for Vascular Surgery in helping us understand what we do know about what we should be doing differently and what our populations need, and then identifying gaps in knowledge and helping to fill those so that we can do the best job possible of advocating for our patients with policymakers. So that's one piece of it. I think that there's a real opportunity for our professional societies to work together. Vascular surgery is interesting. We're not freestanding. We always work in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we partner with and overlap with cardiology, interventional radiology, cardiac surgery, nephrology, endocrinology, general medicine, really everybody. We work both in the hospital and outside the hospital, and we're tied to both settings. Uh, so I think that we're, we're very well situated to understand that when we go to policymakers, we can't have an SVS ask and an American College of Cardiology ask. It just becomes a cacophony by the time the policymakers hear it, if we're really gonna be effective in raising our voice to advocate for our patients, we really need to have a common front, which I think brings the messaging home. It brings that credibility. It really increases the impact and the meaningfulness of, of the message that we're bringing forward. So we're working to do that. At the same time, other things come up. You know, there things happen with the budget. Things happen with legislation, with elections that impact who our lawmakers are and what their priorities and values are. That certainly changes what we're doing. And we are also tackling the issue of appropriateness and tackling it head on. So. We talked a little bit this morning about the idea that there is care that's maybe not high-value care that's being offered to patients, which we worry about on the cost standpoint, and maybe we worry about on the outcomes standpoint. We own this as a society you know, and as surgeons to make sure that we are dedicated to understanding what best practices are, what's best for our patients, and and adopting those practices to the extent that we understand them. So, and some of that is a little bit of PR and educating the public 
about what we do, just like we've been talking about educating lawmakers about what we do. And part of it is examining our own practices. And it's like morbidity and mortality conference, always being self-critical and self-aware and always open to asking how we could be doing things better. Of course. And then in our last couple of minutes, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is burnout. Do you have any self-care strategies or any hobbies or passions outside of medicine and health policy that really keep you going? Oh, there are a thousand things that keep me going. (laughs) I have a 13-year-old daughter who's absolutely spectacular and a wonderful husband. We've been together a long time, so it's an anchor. I love the outdoors and getting outside from under the fluorescent lights. All of my friends know that. They also know that my big revelation, if one of the big contributors to burnout for a primarily hospital-based surgeon is waiting for turnover times in the operating room that I'll put on a pair of running shoes. And I'm blessed to live in a beautiful community where you can look at the mountains from the hospital and go for a quick run, which I think lets you let out all the, let out all the badness and, and reset your mind, see a little bit of sunshine and bring back a better self um, by the time you're ready to come do an operation. So I, of course, love you know, I love cooking. I love travel. Uh, I'm lucky to have uh, family all over the place in the States and family in Europe, and, and we like spending time with them. But I do think there's always a balance. Which I love to read real books. I think there's a balance between the things that you love to do that are a little aspirational and the things that you do that actually keep you going on a daily basis. And then I think I have this family, and the visit to Emory has been wonderful because it's almost like a class of siblings. You come up in a world that you realize is a small world you've been trained by the same people, you've grown up in the same environment, you all have an inherent understanding of of the life that we're all living and the successes and failures that we all have, the frustrations that we all have, and you find those friendships incredibly sustaining. So it's nice that in the modern era we keep track by bumping into each other at meetings from time to time or talking or texting or emailing each other. It's really wonderful to see each other in the flesh and sit down and, and have dinner and catch up from time to time. So you find that all of those things, you become resourceful at drawing on all of those things to take care of yourself. I think there's something to you know eating well and exercising, getting some sunshine and getting enough sleep, but to the extent that you can't usually do more than two out of those three things at any given time, uh, you learn to be resourceful about it. That's amazing. It's definitely always great to hear that someone as busy as you also has all these hobbies and passions that you're really excited about outside of the hospital too. Well, I think that it's interesting. Uh, The Medical Scholars Program was founded by uh, a physician who basically said, I, the secret is that I actually think that you're a better physician and a richer, better rounded person if you have intense interests in other things. And if people have talents and intense interests in other things, whether it's music or literature, Um, we will breed a better group of physicians by encouraging people to engage intensely uh, in things outside of medicine and to sustain that over a lifetime. Definitely. I think that that really highlights the the connection between physicians in all different disciplines. And then, of course, with our patients is our humanity and trying to nurture that as well. I think it makes sense. It would only make us better clinicians and, and future surgeons. So we really appreciate you coming and Thank you so much for talking with us. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate your making this. Um, and I, I think it's a real resource that you are all doing this. And I wish you all the absolute best 
in your careers. You've got a lot uh, ahead of you. And as we talked about, there's going to be a lot of change and we'll rely on you know, rising leaders such as yourselves to shape that system that's going to be taking care of people like me when I'm old. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, if there's anything that we can ever do to be supportive of your interest, particularly on the policy front or in vascular surgery, please reach out. You're tuning in to another episode of Wiser. If you like this episode, please rate and leave us a review as it helps others find the show. You can also share with friends and family. Follow us along on Instagram and Twitter at Wiser Podcast for updates. See you in the next episode.